Hello and welcome to the Bycom podcast. My name is Samuel Nerding. It's Friday the 8th of July and in this week's episode Bycom is previewing US President Joe Biden's upcoming trip to Israel, the West Bank and Saudi Arabia next week. To discuss the visit and its significance, I'm delighted to be joined with Daniel Kurtzer. Daniel is a professor of Middle East Policy Studies at Princeton University. Prior to his posting, Daniel enjoyed a 29-year career in the US Foreign Service, serving as US Ambassador to both Israel and Egypt. Ambassador Kurtzer, thanks for coming to the Balkan podcast. My pleasure. So perhaps we can start with you explaining to our listeners um, why President Biden is coming to the Middle East now. Um, he had previously described Saudi Arabia as a prior state. So is this visit born out of necessity or is it a policy shift by the Biden administration? It's actually unclear why the president decided to go to the Middle East at this time. Uh, one reason is that uh, when he was vice president under Barack Obama, Obama came under significant criticism for not visiting Israel until his second term. And I think Biden wanted to check that box before the uh, midterms, uh, midterm elections that will take place uh, in November of this year. Uh, once that trip was scheduled, uh, the possibility of uh, increasing cooperation, you know, maintaining and rebuilding alliances with Arab states also came on the screen. And uh, I think the White House decided to try to combine that into uh, a longer trip with uh, very distinct purposes. But uh, the closer we get to the visit, the more uh, difficult it is to see uh, how much uh, positive can come out of it. What do you think the kind of Biden team's goals are then going to the visit? What, what do you think that they're hoping to achieve? Well, there are at least two different purposes, I think, in their objectives. With the, the Saudis and the other Arabs, there will be a summit meeting of eight or nine countries. And what, it, what I think they're hoping to showcase is that the United States is back. Uh, has not left the Middle East, has not pivoted away from the Middle East, but still has a power of convening uh, its friends and allies. Uh, clearly on the agenda is uh, a security focus, uh, specifically designed to deal with uh, what is largely perceived as the Iranian threat, not only nuclear, but also conventional as Iran's proxies a fight in various fronts uh, in the Middle East. Uh, so on, on the Arab side, I think that's uh, what the objective is. Of course, as you noted in the introduction, uh, the fact that uh, President Biden uh, did call the Saudis a pariah state uh, and now essentially will be shaking hands with the leaders of that pariah state uh, make for challenging politics back home. Second purpose has to do with uh, Israel and Israel-Palestine. Uh, there is no peace process. There's no peace process uh, on the agenda, uh, both in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, and I think the, the president will want to see whether or not it's possible to start rebuilding, uh, not negotiations, but uh, the possibility of uh, a better relationship. Uh, this means that Israel will be asked not to uh, uh, intensify its settlement activity, especially in very sensitive areas. 
uh, Israel will be asked to uh, calm down the situation in Jerusalem, which, as you recall, led to war uh, just over a year ago. And the Palestinians will be asked to, to govern better. Uh, their politics and their governance are, are quite weak. Uh, no elections have taken place in, in years. And I think the president will want to encourage both sides to uh, tamp down the, uh, the tensions and to see if any kind of relationship can be rebuilt. But, right, but, but before we go on to kind of the regional stuff, perhaps I can ask you to kind of flesh out more. You, you mentioned that it's, it's, it's challenging domestic politics for Biden coming to Saudi Arabia. How has the visit played out on Capitol Hill, particularly within the Democratic Party, where, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia isn't viewed overly positively? Well, there's been a lot of criticism, although among Democrats, you know, the, the objective has been uh, to keep the criticism as muted as possible. Uh, President Biden is coming under enough pressure for the failure to deliver on his domestic agenda. And uh, the closer we get to the midterms, the more fraught the situation is within the Democratic Party. So um, I don't think the Democrats have wanted to pile on the president but uh, some of the more vocal Democrats are, are critical of the president's, uh, as they perceive it, cozying back up to the Saudis, uh, irrespective of the uh, uh, Saudi unwillingness to take responsibility for the assassination of Khashoggi and Saudi activities in Yemen and so forth. Um, the main uh, criticism, of course, has come from the other side of the aisle. The Republicans have pounced on this as a an indication that Biden is, uh, quote unquote, appeasing the, uh, the Arabs, uh, particularly the Saudis. Uh, so it only adds to President Biden's uh, uh, domestic political woes. Uh, normally, a president looks to foreign policy uh, when uh, the domestic situation becomes uh, challenging. In this context, uh, both domestically and uh, internationally, President Biden is under some pressure. Perhaps um, let's move on to the region. And you mentioned uh, the, the Iranian threat as one of the kind of the key themes that President Biden's come to the region. Um, if we break that threat down into maybe nuclear and non-nuclear issues, and let's start with the nuclear one, um, it's kind of no secret that many regional actors, particularly Israel, want the US to exert greater pressure on Iran um, in response to its kind of nuclear breaches of the JCPOA nuclear agreement. Do, do you think the Biden administration is approaching the end of its tether with Iran on nuclear negotiations? Do you think there is an end for Robert Maley to say enough is enough and we have to go to a, a plan B? Well, clearly the negotiations are in trouble. Uh, the Iranians have refused to include the United States in the direct talks. Uh, the US has wanted to sit with the Iranians either in the context of the permanent five members plus one negotiations uh, or separately, as was done in 2015. The Iranians have refused. The Iranians have also introduced extraneous issues, such as removing the Iranian Revolutionary Guards from the terrorism list, uh, which uh, is outside the scope of these negotiations. Uh, so the negotiations are going very poorly. Uh, and my understanding is it's not because of the position of the P P5 plus one, uh, rather the Iranians are trying to extract uh, concessions external to the nuclear issue uh, as a condition for, for agreeing on the nuclear issue. 
The problem, of course, is that, that President Biden and the administration uh, inherited a, a, a no-win situation. Once President Trump had withdrawn the United States from the agreement, uh, Iran felt uh, uh, open to uh, restarting enrichment and accumulating uh, fissile material. Uh, so, you know, both sides, in a sense, are, are, are violating uh, the 2015 agreement. And uh, there's not a positive end in sight. On the non-nuclear issues, Iran has been a major factor in the Yemen war, uh, has encouraged or been directly involved in launching uh, missiles at uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, we know Iranian activities in Syria have uh, exacerbated the situation. Its ongoing supply relationship with Hezbollah uh, continues to be a security challenge for Israel. And it has a supply relationship with uh, the uh, resistance groups in the Gaza Strip. So uh, on all fronts, Iran is a, a regional security problem as well as a nuclear problem. Uh, one of the things which we hear coming out of Israel is um, a plea, maybe, as you can say, of the Biden administration providing a more serious commitment to act militarily to prevent Iran's nuclear progress. Do, do you think that's a realistic foreign policy from, for a Biden team or perhaps any other future US administration to actually provide a clear commitment to act militarily against Iran? I think the President Biden has been careful to uh, try to uh, stay on a, a very difficult line here, which is to have the Iranians believe that the United States will do what is necessary to stop the nuclear program without threatening the use of force. And that's, of course, a, a hard line to, uh, to, to stay on. Uh, the, uh, I think uh, learning the lesson from the Obama administration where the rhetoric sometimes outstripped the policy you remember Assad must go when there really wasn't a strategy for Assad to go, um, has sobered up the uh, Biden administration so as not to issue threats that turn out to be idle. Uh, if one asks at the end of the day, would the administration use force to, uh, to stop the Iranian program? Should it reach the point of uh, uh, you know, where it's just around the corner? Uh, my own guess is no. Uh, I don't think the administration wants the Iranians to believe that, but the United States is coming out of uh, more than 20 years of two very difficult wars in that region, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and there's no stomach among the American public for uh, another war, and a war with Iran is not going to be, as we say, a walk in the park. Uh, Iran has a uh, a robust uh, military capability. Um, they also use asymmetric uh, uh, military means, uh, terrorism and other uh, uh, tactics. Uh, it's not as though the United States is, is quote unquote afraid of fighting Iran. Our military is still uh, the most dominant in the world, but uh, it's not easy to defeat uh, an army as uh, significant as uh, the Iranians have. And therefore, it would be very hard for any president, whether Biden or, or a successor, to decide to go to war. 
I'd like to get your thoughts on something which the King of Jordan recently said. Um, I think he told journalists when he was in the US that he would support a military alliance in the, in the Middle East that was similar to NATO. How much credibility do you give to that idea? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, you go back uh, 50 or 60 years when the US and the UK were trying to form such alliances in the context of the Cold War. And of course, uh, the Arab states were, were uh, neuralgic to the idea and uh, didn't want any part of it, an alliance with uh, outside Western countries, certainly former colonial uh, powers. Uh, in this case, I think uh, there is at least more room for discussion. Part of the uh, agenda for the summit meeting that will take place in Saudi Arabia during the Biden visit is going to be on regional security. And uh, what lessons have we learned from the effort to create a regional security architecture? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, the challenge will be that some countries, as much as they oppose Iranian activities, don't want this alliance to be quote unquote directed at Iran, even though in fact it would be. Um, and so how do you uh, construct such an alliance that uh, is designed to secure everyone without necessarily saying there's a common enemy uh, against which the alliance is uh, is directed. So I, I would I would actually take it more seriously than in the past, especially coming from an Arab leader. You know, when these ideas have surfaced in the past, they've normally come from <clears throat> excuse me from outside the region. So it's interesting that uh, the King of Jordan has uh, has made this proposal publicly. Yeah, absolutely. And and if if hypothetically speaking, if if there was such an alliance, maybe to to be formed um, even at its early stages, what kind of a role did the U.S. would be asked to play um, if if there was yeah an alliance that was to be formed? Well. Uh, among the many challenges of forming such an alliance, you know, let alone the difficulty of getting uh, diverse Arab states to agree on uh, a common strategy, a common concept, uh, interoperability of forces and so forth, is um, perhaps the main uh, question is what in NATO is called Article 5, which is what's the trigger that would uh, bring uh, other nations in the alliance to fight for a nation that's under, under threat. Uh, and that's whether it's in NATO or in any uh, proposed alliance in the Middle East, that's going to be, I think, the most difficult question. Uh, would the United States, would the UK, would others agree to uh, an article in a treaty that says, uh, under certain circumstances, uh, we would fight for country X coming under pressure. Uh, in the case of Israel, for example, Israel has always said it does not want other countries fighting for it. Um, and I think that would apply to some, some others as well. So, uh, you know, the idea is interesting. Uh, thinking about it will be very challenging, but it'll be extremely hard to put together uh, a serious, incredible uh, concept, and then to translate that into uh, into action. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on to the the U.S. Israel bilateral. Um, in terms of all of 
presidential trips to Israel, how important is, is this one? Well, in, in most respects, it's, it's not important. Uh, it's interesting because it comes after the collapse of the uh, Israeli coalition. Mm-hmm. It's a chance for the president uh, early on to uh, uh, talk again to the new prime minister, Lapid, uh, to test the waters of whether, at least for the next few months, uh, Lapid would be willing to uh, keep things calm in uh, Jerusalem and on the uh, settlements front. Uh, it's a chance to uh, rebuild a little bit of the very fraught relationship that now exists between the United States and the Palestinians uh, that was largely created as a result of the malign activities of the Trump administration. So there's, 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 there, are, there are factors at play here that make the trip interesting. They also make the trip challenging because uh, everybody remains angry at everybody else. Mm. The last manifestation of that, of course, was the uh, the uh, uh, Shireen Abu Akhla uh, bullet question when the United States uh, did examine the bullet that killed uh, the journalist and came out with a conclusion that satisfied neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians. Um, you mentioned, obviously, that Biden might be coming to try and see what, what movement there could be on on Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, I don't know if you picked up earlier this week that Lapid was in France and Macron apparently called on Lapid to meet with President Abbas and Lapid didn't publicly say he wouldn't. And I think this morning we even got news that Lapid and Abbas spoke on the phone. Do, do, do you think Biden would also come to Israel and try and push Lapid to maybe meet with the bash. Do you think that's something that could happen in the next three to four months while he's an interim prime minister? Well, we also know that uh, Benny Gantz, the, the defense minister, just met with uh, right. Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. So there, there's a little bit of movement uh, uh, beneath the surface. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't be illogical for Biden to suggest such a meeting, but uh, the more logical uh, outcome of uh, such an engagement would be to have a substantive agenda. In other words, the meeting itself um, is hard to accomplish for politics purposes, but what do they actually talk about? Now, Gantz and and Abbas did talk about the common security issues and and recommitted to security cooperation. Once that's been done, does Lapid have to do the same thing with Abbas or <clears throat> excuse me, would a Lapid-Abbas meeting require some movement, however small, on uh, political issues between them, whether it's uh, a little more freedom of movement for Palestinians, a little bit less settlement activity, uh, easier exports, uh, whatever. Um, and once you start to inject the question of content, then uh, setting up a meeting becomes uh, uh, much more difficult. Fair, fair. Um, perhaps we can move on to um, something that's been particularly been um, uh, reported in Israel, Israeli media is, is this norm- normalization idea of Israel and Saudi Arabia kind of creeping towards more overt ties. Um, how far do you think Saudi-Israeli normalization can go um, the next kind of couple of months and, and how far I think Biden can, can push it. There, there was reports obviously of maybe Israel getting um, flights, direct flights to, to Saudi Arabia or at least having Israeli flights fly over Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia airspace to, to Asia. 
Um, so how far do you think normalization kind of progress can, can go during this visit? Well, look, normalization with a small N has been taking place since uh, the Madrid Peace Conference, when the Saudis and Israelis started meeting <clears throat> openly uh, in the context of the multilateral talks that took place after Madrid. And what we've seen since then uh, has been a, a series of baby steps uh, in the Saudi-Israeli relationship, much of it behind the curtain. Uh, there's a lot of intelligence and security interaction, although not a lot of action uh, by the two sides. Um, and of course, the, the so-called Abraham Accords brought uh, normalization with other Arab countries out into the open, uh, suggesting that maybe it was time for the Saudis also to come out in the open. Uh, the difference, however, is that the Saudis, at least under King Salman, uh, have, <clears throat> have made clear that um, the Palestinian issue, and particularly Jerusalem, uh, need to be dealt with uh, before there's going to be open normalization. Now, that doesn't preclude the idea of additional baby steps. The Israelis uh, just, I think yesterday or today, have suggested uh, to the Saudis that there be direct flights from Israel to Saudi Arabia for the Hajj, for the pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, and that's not out of the question. Uh, that would involve a Muslim uh, a religious pilgrimage and uh, would be seen as a very positive step, uh, both for the Muslim community in uh, Israel and the occupied territories, as well as for uh, uh, the Israel-Saudi relationship. But I, I don't think, at least while King Salman is around, there's going to be, uh, uh, the, the curtain is going to open in a, uh, a full normalization. Um, great, thank you. Uh, perhaps we can end, I can end on a kind of bit more of a broad, broad <coughs> question. Um, you might not have seen this, but a new survey by BBC Arabic this week released a, a poll and it showed that Arabs, particularly young Arabs, are losing faith in democracy to deliver economic stability in the region. Um, and it kind of suggested that there's, there's a rise of support for authoritarian stability. How concerned are you with this idea that the younger kind of generation are losing their faith in democratic institutional values and they are turning more towards authoritarian leaders to secure their, their economic futures? Well, I think we all have to be very concerned um, because of the danger that uh, this holds for um, those Arab states where um, this next generation uh, is ready to give up on uh, more open societies. It's an illusory uh, concept, the idea that if you get powerful authoritarian leaders, somehow your economy is going to improve. Uh, and I call it illusory because in a sense, it's, it's a little bit of the Chinese model, but how happy are the people of China living under uh, authoritarian rule? Uh, if Arabs believe that that's uh, a good way to proceed, uh, a kind of police state, uh, lack of internet freedom, lack of uh, uh, human rights and civil liberties, uh, then I, I'm sorry, they're, they're uh, mistaken and uh, they're going to end up perhaps uh, living a little better economically, but uh, in a repressive environment. 
so I think the rest of us just have to do better in fixing our own societies. I tend to look at, at the United States first. Uh, you know, before we preach to others about democracy, we ought to fix ourselves. And we've got a lot, lot of work to do, as, as you've seen over the past uh, weeks, months, and years. And we're not, we're not really doing it very well. So uh, the better that we uh, accomplish our own democratic purposes, the better that model will be seen in the eyes of, uh, of Arabs and others. Well, I think I can echo that sentiment um, based on what we've seen in the last four days in, in the UK. Um, on that note, Ambassador Kurtz, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your thorough analysis on next week's trip. And thank you once again for giving us your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.